Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hello, this is episode 52 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Trevor Dormer. For understandable reasons, we associate golf courses with the golf architects who designed them. After all, there's usually a singular name or brand attached to them. Bill Korn, Ben Crenshaw designed Stream Song Red. Gil Hance overhauled Pinehurst No. 4. Tom Fazio built Wade Hampton and Wild Dunes, and so on. In reality, building a golf course takes, as they say, a village. Every feature you interact with on a golf course, from the tee to bunkers to peripheral mounds and hollows to green contour, was built by a specialist someone who is almost always not the presiding architect. In the best cases, golf courses are expressions of the imaginations of a whole team of players. Golf design is full, especially in the more freewheeling design-build realm of architecture, of shaping and construction artists who until very recently lurked in the background, honing their sets of skills in relative obscurity. Trevor Dormer is one of the business's core group of talented, creative shapers who helps to envision and then build the individual elements of golf courses that routinely earn their bosses acclaim. He began working construction jobs in 2002 for Nicholas Design before working his way onto machinery. From there, he joined onto projects for prominent designers like Robin Heisman, Ron Pritchard, Tom McBroom, Rod Whitman, and Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw. Dormer is currently outside Bangkok, helping to shape and oversee construction of Ballyshear Golf Links, the new Gil Hans course at the Bon Ricotte Club. Ballyshear is a modern interpretation of the famed Lido course on Long Island, which closed in 1942. Originally built by C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner, the Lido was considered one of the finest courses in America and featured versions of many of the famed holes originally built at the National Golf Links of America. Via Skype, Trevor and I talk about Ballyshear in the second half of this podcast, but this was a really big, expansive conversation that hit on a broad range of architectural themes and included some behind-the-scenes insight into the mentality and practices of shapers in the shaping world. We've been direct messaging occasionally for over a year, and I've always been impressed with Trevor's philosophical positions and passion. I know you're going to enjoy hearing his ideas on architecture and the outlook he and his peers have concerning the next generation of golf design. Here he is, all the way from Thailand, Trevor Dormer. The other feedback I get occasionally is, you know, got from people who work with them, like yourself, is, is like, you know, they're, they're, a lot of these guys have one personality on the job site out of necessity. You know, they're there to do a job and they have a lot of responsibilities and they're in work mode. And it's different to hear them when they're uh, in a situation that's completely different than the environment that other people are normally interact with them. So to hear them on a podcast, you kind of often catch a different side of their personality. Yeah. And, you know, in the opposite way as well, like you catch a different side of their personality, but also, you, you know, they they become a bit more reserved in some ways. Like, uh, you know, I, I know and I've worked with, a, uh, you know, a few of the guys Jim Wagner. You've, you've interviewed. <laughs> Y'all, Yo, man, he is. I mean, he is unreal. I, you know, Jim, he's one of my favorite guys. And I, I to tell you the truth, I mean, I've had email conversations with them, 
text messages, conversations with them, but I haven't really spent a whole lot of them other than a few walkthroughs to bump in Thailand. But, you know, he's just a, a, he's real, you know, like he's, he didn't really hold back on your podcast. Well, I mean, and even then, I, I know I got the, like the PG 13 version of a, com- a typical oh. conversation with Jim. Oh yeah. You, you, go, yeah, you got a PG 13, but the cool thing about Jim is he's, he is so smart. Like when it comes to golf architecture, he doesn't get, I mean, he, he doesn't get what, you know, he deserves as, as far as a spotlight, but man, if someone just could sit him down and get him to be somewhat serious and like, if you could get him down for, to talk about golf architecture for a long time, man, you would, you would get an education. It's, you know, just some of the things that he, he says, you know, like, one of the things that I picked out when he was up here, um, of areas off the, that will still get a lot of water in low areas. We're trying to get, um, like bunker floors in like native areas, uh, to drain and to water, to get into a catch basin or get off. And he, he just basically said, you know what, if, if water stays there for a while and a, a type of vegetation, grass grows up in there or something like that and it stays too long and the the color of the grass turns yellowish or or different color than the rest that adds to the contrast of a golf course and i was like you got to be kidding me we've we spend so much time trying to get like those (laughs) bird baths off of the fairways because it's like uh it's like a scar in you know, a shaper or a finisher because you didn't take that little detail to fill in, you know, a centimeter of sand or dirt. And he's like, you know what, if water stays there a little longer and it reacts to the grass in some way and adds to a bit of character, that's cool. That adds to, you know, all these old courses that, you know, the grass will adapt over decades and it will you know, work itself out, you know? So, so would, would you, would that be, would you was he like suggesting that it's okay if the the grass morphs, you know, into something yes. else, but you still want to mow it at Mary Hot. You're not just going to leave like a, a wet uh, <laughs> puddle with long grass sticking out. You have to incorporate that into a, a playable feature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or was he saying you could just like, let's just leave it the way it is and, and play around it. Yeah. Like he, he just wasn't too concerned about it, you know, whereas we're like, you know, and this area was off of the fairway. It was down in like a a native area, but it was going to have some it was going to have some native planting or something like that. But his context was just talking about in general, mm-hmm. and he says that's fine because to be honest, you get a, a you know a one inch downpour, and how long is that puddle going to stay there? Half a day. It, even in the you know wettest of climates, it might stay there for. Mm-hmm. Or if it's if it's hotter, it might stay there for a day. Like what he's trying to say is that golfers need to just be less, you know, yeah, n- need to be more relaxed about a golf course and not have everything so perfect. Yeah. And that to me just that was one of those tidbits. And it's just one of them. It's absolutely just one of those things that really kind of caught to me. Is like, you know, he's so into like the details and like the way that those guys put texture to a golf course. I think that they're the best or if not one of the best, like 
I mean, Boston Golf Club, you can look at a hoopie, you can look at, I mean, even Pinehurst, um, you know, the way they, the, the detail and care and attention that they take to um, unplayable areas is like, you know, they're, they're trying to be the nature faker, you know, like they're, yeah. they're trying to make everything, everything look good. And I think they're probably one of the best in, in the bit. I've worked with some really good guys. That's one thing like I, you know, I, I enjoy working with obviously, you know, Bill and Ben cause they're so good, but I really enjoy working with other architects and <clears throat> I want to continue to work with other architects because, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about is I don't want to just get stuck into one designer's, um, you know, MO, like they're the way they do things. I want to find different ways or different tidbits or whatever. So, I, you know, I want to help out and work with a lot of different guys that I think are notable. Yeah, and you just touched on a lot of different topics that I that we want to get to, and, and one of the things yeah. that I have, as you know, if you listen to this show, I've always tried to pursue is you know what's different about this contemporary period that we're in, you know, these last twenty years or so to use a loose time frame, and there are a lot of different things that come up. I just did another um, podcast uh, with Bruce Charlton, and we were talking a lot about Chambers Bay and and how there was a big yeah. shift, you know, right around you know between. Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes, where there was a, an emphasis in ground contour that didn't exist before, and yeah. part of that resulted in your, the developers were exploring sites that had natural, beautiful rolling contour already, and then you had architects that were smart enough to leave it alone. But even on more manufactured projects like Chambers Bay, there's the creation of this micro contour and using slopes and building it in, and you contrast that back to the generation prior and this was the period where you know they're using like larger machines and they're doing a lot more grading and if you look at photos from golf courses from the 70s really and um even the 60s and 70s and into the 80s you know the everything's really flat you know they're yeah i think they they just they just hammered down a lot of anything that was that would have seemed sort of wild or unkempt or unnatural or rolling there was you know i think a, a wide flat fairway maybe not wide but a flat level live fairway was sort of the ideal yeah. so that that contouring is is a big element to the con, the current architectural trends which has spread throughout the industry really and also what you just mentioned is yeah. a, a, a reluctance to mess with things you just you know talking about going back to wagner and his idea of just like letting this grass sort of evolve on its own because of the the position that it's in and the moisture that it's going to receive you know that would have been that would have been fixed in previous generations that would have been like taken right out of there and, and repaired and elevated or whatever. And it, you know, the, the yeah. predominant architects that get the great, greatest projects and the greatest sites. Now they're more willing to be hands off. I mean, and I think that's part another element of, of this period that we're in is it is a, an, a, a greater willingness to let be what exists and even accept the accidents that happen during a construction projects, happy accidents that are very interesting. And, and they say, well, let's just leave it there. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no. And you're right. Like, um, the thing that comes to my mind is, uh, is like the router, you know, the, the, the expert router and how he can put 
golf holes into place where you don't have to push up a green site or you don't have to, um, you know, build a scooped out pit. Like, you know, Donald Ross, I mean, he, he, his courses look somewhat natural, but you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, courses that he's built to where they're not like the ground is flattish and kind of rolling, but he's come along and he's scooped out a pit and bladed on the back. So these backs of these bunkers just are propped up out of the ground unnaturally. And then he came in and, you know, built, built fill pads. He scooped dirt out and built these greens that are kind of propped up out of the ground. And if you're really to think about it, it's not a natural setting for that contour, you know? Yeah. And if you go around his, his, you know, and I'm not going to, I can't name which site or whatever, but then I, you know, then I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Alex Russell and the course he did in New Zealand, Paraparamu beach and, uh, on multiple green sketches that he did, it said, leave the green contour unaltered. Mm hmm. And it's like, are you so okay? Just strip off the grass, float it out. There's your green. So he routed that to a point where he he didn't really want to. I don't. I don't know. I haven't died, dove into it to to see it. But that was one of the things that stuck in his routing. There, he 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 routed um, the course to where you know it yielded those natural green sites and it flowed like into the terrain, you know, instead of making a green site and then trying to propagate that green site to yeah. meld into the surrounding terrain, his, his philosophy in that instance at Paraparamu beach was wow. just leave the green unaltered, strip off the grass, float it out. It's good. You know, let it be what it should be, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I'm imagining that's the way, you know, most of the Lynx courses developed in Scotland and in the UK. I, I know, yeah. you know, architects would go back later and maybe emphasize a mound or, or expand the surface or tie things in a little bit. But, you know, I think those early Lynx courses, they'd cite the greens and just and just try to grow grass on the natural contours of of the sand that was underneath it. And that sounds like what, what you're saying Alex Russell did, a very kind of ancient way to build a golf course. Which, and then you yeah, think about Donald that, Ross, like when we think about the, the, you know, the great sites that were, you know, becoming available to architects in the 1920s and 1910s. When we think of a great site, a great Donald Ross site, it's it's not because of the the micro contours or the the ability to go in and just no. lay grass on a contour. It's really more about elevation changes and setting and the way big features work together, not the small little detail features. So it's a you, I guess you'd have to manufacture more on top of those large sweeping features that make the golf course attractive. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And then, you know, uh, in, in some ways, I guess it's just because I'm in the industry and I, you know, I do the shaping on, on courses, but like, if you look at courses like Bandon and, uh, I, I even noticed it at Barn Boogle, I can tell where those guys dug in their dozer blade to make those micro contours mm. a little bit more enhanced. I mean, it's, it's somewhat, um, random, but when you see an aerial photo 
it's probably random more so from the ground because that's the way that we look at things is mainly from the ground and, and from the golfer's perspective and from the ground, it looks, I mean, it's amazing. It's, you know, you got the, you know, epitome of, you know, variety in a sense. It's lots of uneven lies and you're never going to have the same spot of the fairway, same lie. But, you know, for me, I can tell in a sense, oh man, he, he went up the fairway on the left hand side and just scooped his dozer blade in a little bit more there and built a little hollow. And then, you know, when the finished crew came after, then they softened it out to create those little shadows. So, you know, some of that is, you know, for, for, um, the golfer, you can't tell, no, you can't tell what they did. You know, but for for guys, for guys like us, you, you can say, oh, you know, whoever did this might have gotten a little bit too busy to, you know, R.I. or or whatever. But I mean, it's there's a fine line with that, too. And now I'm curious. I'm curious. Do you know on these projects you're talking about? And I'm sure there are many you can you know name a, quite a few golf courses where you might have had this experience. Do you know when you're thinking about this, who exactly who did the work since you're in the business? <laughs> well, you know, there's I'm not, certain yeah, guys I'm not going to ask you characteristics. To, yeah. I'm sorry. Go, say that again. Yeah. There's, there's certain guys that have certain characteristics and certain routines and rhythms where they go down a fairway and then they do a certain little thing with their machine or uh-huh. whatever, whether, you know, it's, guys on a on an excavator with a, a wrist bucket where they can get really humpy and bumpy in a certain section they tend to go to and so you can't te- like you as a golfer or um you as another person in the industry might not be able to tell but if you've worked with a certain guy for an amount of time you notice these little things that over since you can tell oh um you know, Keith did that little thing or, you know, <laughs> you know, just certain things like that uh-huh. um, where they built a contour or uh, a bunker. I mean, bunkers are, are, are the worst. I mean, and this is the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about that I spend so much time on is thinking about how to stay fresh and how to not build the same thing twice. Uh-huh. Because I think that that, to me, I, I feel like I'm being to a default that I've done. Like, you know, if I, if I notice, like, in front of a green, I've, I've built a, a, a roll or a bump on the left-hand side on, say, four greens on the golf course. They might be different sizes or, and different looks and appearances, but if it affects... If it affects the approach shot the same in some way, I I just like, ah, oh, shit, yeah. I got to go back and mm-hmm. mess things up, you know, because you can get stuck in that. You know, you just you're like for me, I I uh, being you know, creative I get, is difficult. It's, you know, oh, it, finding it's, finding something that you you personally haven't done or thought of before. is not easy. I mean, you'd have, you'd have thought about it already if it was that easy to do. Yeah, no, it's it's. It's one of those things, and that's why, you know, I spend so much time thinking of, you know, seeing different golf courses that guys are working on now or that they've worked on in the past. I'll see something in a photo from, say, some, some, from Stonewall 
or from sand hills or from you know uh, a course that you know these you know top architects built back in there in the day like when they're new right and i'll be like oh shit i gotta i gotta you know screen grab that and use it and put it in my in my bank because you know golf course architecture is kind of like um i see it in some ways as like uh you know a, a hot new band like or not a hot new band like an old band like say most of their albums the best albums are their first debut albums <laughs> you know like i think of the like just for an example the offspring you know like their first album smash was just so like nirvana i mean the, you can go down the down the list some of their best albums are just so fresh and like raw and you know they've just been waiting to get a lot of this stuff out there and it's what caught you know and so you know it's for like gill and you know bill and even tom like i think tom thinks of high point as his yeah one of his greatest creations you know he's always talking about that well, and and i know i know shaped all the green yeah i know bill core and 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 dave and and dan like they still go back to sand hills i mean i don't know that they've ever thought uh, yeah. they've done anything that good again that's an interesting point about about music yeah, though no, i think about yeah. that all the time in fact i i don't know i must i've been thinking about this a lot lately and trying to figure out how to incorporate into a discussion of golf course design and i think maybe you just you just brought it into the podcast but it's like how many how many bands do you know that have gotten better through the years and their latest later albums are better than their early albums like the obviously the beatles they got yeah, better the beatles, and more complex <laughs> That was LSD that, well, and drugs. There you that's, go. Maybe you need some of that to open up your mind in the in the golf shaping creation field. But like, like <laughs> I, I think of a band like U two, and I love their yeah. first like three albums. That's I could just sit, sit on those and listen to those. And as they got bigger and more complex, they got a lot less interesting to me. Um, and in golf architecture, I don't know. Like some people, like I think I think that um, Coors work i don't know that it it started off at such a high level i don't know that it, it you know i got better but it didn't get it didn't recede at all um no maybe gills work got better because they got better projects it's a very interesting interesting way to look at golf course architecture is the progression but just to take it back to what you were talking about a minute ago in your position you know when you start off and you started off in what like 2002 2003 2004 working on on projects you probably had a thought you were doing a good job in whatever you were working on but your experience yeah. was so limited and as you've gone on all these years your your experience and your knowledge and and your point of references have have grown and grown and grown so it's so interesting to think about people in your business and your your peer group and how you talked about their 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 trademarks their tells and their shaping you know and they were that was from one point in time and i guess the question is are they getting is everybody getting better you know and it's going back to music is bands don't always get better they 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 always change there's hardly any yeah. band i can think of that just kind of stayed in that same mode their whole career but they don't always get better so that's the key is if you're acknowledging your your trademark or your signatures and 
And are you trying to get better? Do you need to get better? Do you need to evolve? And are you evolving and getting better? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to always try to get better because there's so many good guys. I mean, like, you know, with this age of, uh, like, shaper architects that are wanting to try to come up because really um, that's what I think is the new kind of wave is, you know, when when you're – if, if you're an architect and you can't run the machine, you have to try to – you have to be a very good uh, listener and speaker to try and tell that shaper exactly what you want. Or you have to be good enough to employ a, a shaper that is really creative that you can work off of his creativity and use something that he's brought to the table and incorporate that into your design. Um, but – as far as like myself, I love shaping and I love being able to shape my own design and my own creative freedom. And that's the most efficient way to build a golf course because you're not, you know, making edits, you're doing it as you go. You, you might come back and be like, yeah, that may not, that didn't work, but now I need to cut that down you know, cut that bump in the back of the green down a foot and a half. So get rid of it. And then you do it and it's done. But these guys that are coming up that are, you know, on the machines and no golf course architecture, they're, they're not stopping. They're not getting stagnant. So, you know, although I, I respect a lot of these guys and I want to collaborate with them in the future, they're, you know, you've got to try and stay or keep up to the level that um that they're putting out you know so you got to try and keep stay creative stay fresh in that aspect and keep honing your your craft in golf architecture and and then also you got to stay good and get better on the machines uh, and quicker and more efficient. And then you also be, ha, need to be a good leader and a good, um, you, you got to cut out your ego if you have any and be open to, you know, other people's ideas, even if it's not what you think is right. You got to be open to just trying it sometimes because a lot of times, you know, guys that don't have the experience will put something out there that's like, wow, that's really cool. You know, and that's that's kind of what, you know, when I was young, I was building stupid stuff, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I was just trying to go for it. You know, I thought I seen a cool looking thing and I built built, a, you know, a bunker or a, a, a part of the fairway that was just unmowable. You know, you couldn't even get a mower on this thing. And I thought that you could, you know, I was like, you can mow that being you know, early twenties, you can bowl that. What are you talking about? But I just didn't <laughs> I have the experience. It. Give me a fly more. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, just being young and, and, you know, just cocky in a sense, but it takes a good leader and a good, um, person that is working with you or overseeing you to recognize like, Hey Trev, you know, that's, that's pretty cool, but yeah, it's not mobile. We got to knock it down a bit, maybe pull it to the left a little bit. And I think that's great. You know, so if you ha- if you don't have a good leader and a guy that's going to make fun of you for doing that or say, what are you doing? Get out of there. I'll do it. Then, you know, that just cuts down 
you know, that young guy's um, willingness to try new things. And yeah, that's, that's what that's what everybody always says about Bill Coor is is that when they, oh, yeah. he'll go in an, in an editing situation and talk uh, uh, about what's wrong or what doesn't work, but walk away making the the shaper feel like the changes that are being made were the shaper's ideas and so there's never it's it's never a dictum it's it's always just like a conversation and then by the end of it the guy's like oh okay well what if maybe i'll maybe i'll do this and then bill said well let's let's see what that looks like you know and and that but going back to like your you're talking about being a young and a shaper and having like some fresh wild ideas that's what dave axon and rod whitman were talking about how it's hard for them because they have so much experience, but they're trying to kind of, they try to consciously go back and capture that, uh, that uh, shaping with abandon, that sort of that youthful exuberance that kind of gets beaten out of you. The longer that you're in whatever profession you're in, you know, you're, you, you don't take chances because you know what works and what doesn't work, but there's a, yeah. there's an element to being like that, that, that punk band, that first band, their first album is so great because it's just their their id it's just out there and it's it's unvarnished and it's raw and it's just pure idea and it just works because there's so much energy behind it and that's what shaping i think that's what you're saying like like there's an element to that that's useful once you learn how to harness it in the correct way but you don't want to lose that edge either yeah you're exactly right i mean you know uh, the the thing I learned about w- with Bill is restraint, you know, and how he, when there's something where I was like, you know, I want, oh, that'd be so cool to do that. He'd just dumb it right down to like, you know, that's going to get a little bit too much to his eye and to his feel. Like there's a, there's something that isn't spoken about really. And people, some guys might have it, some guys might not, but there's an element to like when we're shaping something or when we're designing something that I've Gil kind of put it or um, Bill put it into words for me. And he, he would always say, Oh, that feels good. Well, why did you do yeah. that? Cause it, it feels right over there. There's a, a sense of feel when you're in like a, a bunker and you're, it's at a right depth. It could be six feet. It could be three feet. And you want it at exactly four and a half feet because you're standing in that bunker and it feels good. You go back to the tee and you sit on that tee and the tee is like, ah, maybe this thing feels a little bit too propped up. It feels a little bit too high for the shot. So let's cut it down and then you get it cut down and then you have to add, you know, when you're in the dirt, you got to think six inches higher. So you go on your tippy toes and you stand up and you're like, yeah, that feels good. You know, and that, it, there, there's that whole sense about walking on the land and it, it just feeling right. The, the golf hole feels right. The, the walk up to the green feels right. And sometimes you'll just like have this, the, the approach is too abrupt leading up to the green and it just doesn't feel right. So not many people are going to care or notice about it, but you do. And nobody else might. And some guys might just get it and be like, yeah, this doesn't feel very good. And there's no rhyme or reason. There's no um, book on it. There's no nothing. It's just a, just a thing of like walking the land and knowing golf and building golf and and just being immersed in that culture and – 
Yeah, and that's that's and, the. I mean, if you if there's one thing that describes Core and Crenshaw courses, it's restraint, and it's the yeah. it's the ability to, or, or it's not the ability, it's the the mandate that they have to not do anything that's going to overpower the site or to feel yeah. like it doesn't fit or it's awkward. And and obviously they're the they're the best at that. I think they're the best at that. The criticism yeah. would be that you get a lot of their ovoir that feels the same. There's, if, if there's a criticism about their golf courses, it's that they build the same course over and over again, which is the farthest thing from the truth. It's, a, it's an asinine thing to honestly try to assert that, but you get the, you get the idea behind that. You know, there's, there's a, there is a, a sameness or a consistency to their hands-off a, approach I, I guess, and and it works for them, and it's a beautiful thing, and they yeah. honor the site, and it's gonna, and their architecture is timeless, and and they couldn't do it any other way. But I'm wondering, mm-hmm. w- w- there's got to be value, right, into kind of doing the opposite of it feels right. What about get in your face or make it feel wrong at to make a statement or or to disorient the shot or the golfer in in some way? When does when does that become important? Well, that that depends on. If if that's the um, the theme or the desired outcome of of the course that you want to uh, instill in the course, so if you're like, oh man, I want to get some, uh, you know, I want to get some uh, tough shots out there, or some, you know, I want to I want to flank the golfer here. I want to I want to close them in. I want to you know, if you want to be in certain situations we do do that i mean if you're if you're on the wrong side of a fairway to be cliche about golf architecture you're down below in this hole and you got no view of the green and there's a a six foot high bunker face 30 yards in front of you and then the greens you know now they're 40 or 50 yards past that and you're like shit. This doesn't feel right, you know. <laughs> like, you, uh, there's there's definitely, uh, you know, if you have a site that you want to get and do something different, yeah. I mean, there's you have to kind of set that back. Or if you want to be sharp in your your contouring, like um, one of the things that I I noticed when I did my Long Island. Uh, trip last year was um, the Knoll Green at Piping Rock. Uh, off the back of that thing, it is like an extremely forced bunker off the back of that thing, and it's like it doesn't feel right. It I would never do something like that. And what does you it see that describe all, that? Well, it's you know it's a typical the Knoll you know, Green or McDonald sits up. Yeah, so the Knoll, yeah, it just it sits up really. Um, really high, um, you know, it's a shorter par four. And if you overshoot the green and roll it off the back, the bunker is only probably three yards, two to three yards deep. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's like you've put a step in the back of this green. So okay. it goes down. I, I, I don't know how deep or how, how deep this bunker is, but the, the face off the back of the green, from what I remember, it's, it's gotta be six feet or more over my head. And then if you keep walking out of the back of the bunker, it drops another 
four or five feet down off of that. So it's a, and it's like no smooth transition where they tied the, the green into the background. So a lot of these old guys did that because they didn't have dirt. So they just would prop up features and then whatever the, the dirt, wherever the dirt ended, then that's it. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to get, you know, you don't, you yeah. don't get tie in yeah. dirt to tie into we got. the natural <laughs> ground. Yeah. That's all we got. We, we can't, you know, we can't throw another five shoes on a horse, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. so, so they just, they maximize that and, you know, it's, um, and they, f- you know, they forced some of these things into place. Like, um, I did some work with Rod Whitman at, uh, the Algonquin club up in, uh, New Brunswick Mm -hmm. at St. Andrews by the sea. It's, it was an old Donald's Ross course that got totally blown up by, uh, a a hot Canadian architect from the nineties and, um, and not much was left of it. But, um, anyways, while I was out there, uh, Keith Cutton and I went out to see another, uh, course in, I want to say, I think it was St. John, New Brunswick, and it was a Ross course. And Ron Pritchard was actually out there doing the restoration of it. And, you know, Ross forced this hole into a really steep downhill hole. And then the green, he just put a green on this downhill slope. So if you can imagine the ball rolling down the slope and then all of a sudden the green flattens out. Mm -hmm. And then he was done with the green and so he just sloped the back of the the green off super steep and it's like if you're off the back of that green you got a 15 foot chip back up onto that green <laughs> if if it stops at the bottom of that you know with longer grass or whatever they've mowed it to but it's like they didn't tie things in or make things or say yeah you know what maybe we can't put a hole here cause it's a downhill slope and, uh, the yardage that we want is, you know, halfway down this hill. So that makes you wonder, and going back to piping rock too, it makes you wonder, you know, and you met, you alluded to this, a lot of it's done out of necessity, you know, if they don't have the fill to, to transition <laughs> yeah. out. Um, and, but those, uh, sometimes th- aren't those features like some of the most interesting spots on the golf course? It provides the most character for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's where, you know, Keith and I are like, wow, look at this thing. This is so cool. But yeah, I would never do it because people would look at you or, you know, uh, your client would be like, that's stupid, you know, yeah. or well, you can't do that. Cause they, they're only accustomed to modern golf, which is you know, in the day and age that they've been playing golf, most of the modern golf courses have been bastardized. It's, it's, it's not, it's just, you know, a lot of cook, cookie cutter courses out there that are not interesting. Well, so, it's also, it, you know, on you that, could, you could do that in the front of a green, you know, if you let the golfer see that you can get away with that still, but there's something about doing st- things that off the back of the green or things that are out of sight. That's, that's taboo that, that occur all the time in, in old courses. But it's like, yeah. if you could, if you put it right in front of the, the modern player, you have a better chance of being able to pull it off aesthetically and, and strategically. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. I mean, uh, you know, on that same course, um, in, uh, St. John is 
when there's an uphill uh, rise towards a green, you know, Ross generally didn't like to take the dirt from a bunker that he dug and haul it away. So if you try and dig a pit into a, a steeper fate part of a fairway, you have excess dirt because you can't yeah, create no a back to, on it. Yeah. Yeah. So he would just put, and we seen it on, on this course where he just piled that dirt or that rock, uh, 30 yards forward and, uh, back up the, towards the tee and off to the left-hand side of the fairway in like a, a, a five foot high burial mound. There was no even, there wasn't even, even a, an attempt to smooth it out and make it a nice looking little roll. It was just a burial mound that was, it looked like a dump truck load. And, you know, it was, I'm assuming, and I would, you know, you know, bet that I'm right. Um, that that's what it was with, with those bunkers into that face. So, I mean, it was all necessity. They didn't have big dozers and they didn't have dump trucks and millions of dollars. They're trying to just, you know, make it, all fit into, you know, contained to the hole if they can. They don't want to, you know, like at, at Bamp Springs, um, it, like when they took the truckload or the train loads of topsoil from the prairies and and dumped them, and then they put it onto, uh, uh, I think it was horses at that time and, and uh, wagons, they dumped most of the dirt at the at the start of the course when they came because they, the, the guys got paid by the load, you know? So it's heavier in like where you first get onto the course when they, from then way at the back end of the course. Right. You know, cause they were just trying to like, Oh, I need to go get another load. Yeah, they gonna, didn't want to take it I'm all just the way to that cross end. the line and dump it here. <laughs> go yeah, back. So, yeah. You guys yeah, worry so about tra- transporting this around the site. Yeah. And, you know, we still try and do that today. Like, and, you know, in Japan, that's exactly what happened. Like we had to raise that course up. That was the biggest earth moving project that Corn Crenshaw has ever, ever done. Um, they haven't moved any, I don't know what the numbers are for their next lowest course, but, um, a lot of times like throughout the course, they, they put these steel road plates, and built roads throughout the golf course. So we had to import all this material because a tunnel project was going on um, close by the golf course, and, and the government wanted to get rid of that material without hauling it outside of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So they're paying the golf club a certain amount of money to receive that dirt. And then it, it, you know, essentially it's helping to pay for the golf course to be built, which is yeah. It's always nice to have a, a massive infrastructure project going on nearby for material and sand and gravel. Yeah, it was one of the main reasons why the the project happened. It just worked out good with timing. But so the government would sit, put these steel, the contractor would put these steel road plates from the entrance of the golf course all the way through the golf course down each hole. And then these street trucks would dump off the end and we would raise the fair wheel said, Oh yeah, we can take a certain amount of dirt. Let's raise the fairways up by a meter and then reshape it all. And, you know, a meter, two meters in some places, we'll just build golf, golf holes in these natural valleys that are there. We'll just lessen the severity of the valleys. And sometimes 
the Japanese contractor, they don't like to steer off of their schedule. So they're like, yeah, we're scheduled to uh, put dirt in here for three more days. So another 600 truckloads of dirt. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that? I think this hole is done. (laughs) So I, you know, you just kind of, you're like, no, we have to do this. So you have to take that dirt and find places for it. And you build this up more, you build that up. You just just add another layer of layer of icing to the cake. Yeah, exactly. So you tend to realize, and and at first you're kind of like, no, this golf hole is done. This is, this is what we, we want. And this is, you know, you kind of get like that, but then you're like, well, they're going to keep dumping no matter what. You can't really stop them. I mean, that's, and then that's you're a just like, well, I'd rather do to it. have on a, on a golf course site. <laughs> having too much material. Yeah, exactly. So, but you know, it's, it, it worked, you know, and I'm, and sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, going back to the, this idea of, you know, the, the core philosophy is, you know, we need to find the just right place and then the opposite of that would be at when when do you want to say make it a feature or a golf hole or a golf experience that purposefully you know doesn't feel right and you were saying before that you know when it when it occurs here and there it, it might be a mistake it might not work but maybe if you're adopting that principle or that theme throughout an entire project you might be able to pull it off you might be more successful i think of like mike strands's work as in maybe an yeah. obvious example you know he was interested in getting a reaction out of pushing things in the golfer's face and making them psychologically uncomfortable and have to overcome hazards that were rarely as severe as they might appear to the eye um I, so but i kind of we kind of got sidetracked on the piping rock thing but it, it, it occurs yeah. to me that there's a there's an interesting place and attention that that you and and your peer group is in right now because as you you said at the beginning you know there's there's this drive for you to expand your uh your talent expand your your repertoire to become more accomplished to not try to do the same things you're conscious of what others around you are doing and accomplishing and yet you're also working within the confines, strict confines of, I mean, you're not your, your own boss. This isn't your project. You're executing somebody else's idea and the plan, and, and you're working for your boss, and they're working for a client. So you don't have the true luxury of exploring all the ideas you have. So how do you, you know, in keeping with this, when is it right to kind of confront a, a golfer or, or come up with a concept that is maybe a little avant-garde? How, how do you reconcile those those two worlds? Well, I mean, first of all, you need to get the chance to do it on, you know, unhindered, and um, which you know you need to have someone that wants to bolt. No, no, it's not. Um, you need to have someone that you can, uh, you know, either smooth talk or or show your t- skills and talents, or someone that sees something in you, or you know, you get lucky and and you know you just got to keep grinding to try and, you know, get yourself out there to, um, you know, somehow get noticed. And, you know, a lot of people are doing that through social media now and that, I mean, that has merit, um, in, in some ways, but it's, you know, and it's getting, you know, a lot of people more noticed. So you have to do that. And regardless of how much I dislike doing that and I have a hard time, you know, say, Hey, look what I'm doing. Look where I'm at, you know, but, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, you have to try and get out there to do that. But, you know, for me, I'm ta- I've taken a lot of these ideas and concepts and, um, you know, uh, these aha moments that I've had and, and I've got a, you know, a, a, a book that I got that, you know, at some point it's, it's a lot of those ideas and, um, concepts are going to come into play for me at, you know, or, you know, if I, if I, if I get, you know, aligned with someone who's going to let me kind of take, take some of the reins. And I mean, Bill and Ben and Gil and Jim and, you know, even Rod, like those guys give us so much creative freedom. I mean, they do not, you know, it's like just Bill always says, just have fun with it. You know, just, this is kind of what I want. He gives you a, a, a green sketch or a, a, a whole sketch. And then he says, yeah, that's kind of what I want. But if something else works, just have fun with it. And so he's, he's given you a bit of direction, but really you can, it's, it's kind of up to you to come up with something that he, he's going to be happy with and then get it to a point where he can edit. I mean, these guys, these guys are super smart when it comes to like, you know, working off of the creative energy that their guys have and then being able to edit it to what they feel is right or um, doing that. Because, you know, you think about it, Jack Nicholas, he's got, I don't know how many hundred courses he's got. And, you know, just as an example, uh, you know, Bill and Ben, how many courses have they built? 50 max. And I think Nicholas is a couple hundred for sure. Yes. But how do you stay fresh on each golf hole? after building those that many courses and with bill and ben they're getting creative or they're getting natural sites that they use to work with the land so they're using a lot of the creative uh energy from the the land the site the 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 guys that they work with and this is no disrespect to jack nicholas i'm just using him as an example because he's built a ton of calls courses this could be used for any of the tour pro architects because they pump out a lot of courses but how are those guys staying fresh with their designs for a short par four or uh you know where they a lot of times they'll design uh, the golf hole and make the land work to that golf hole in some cases. And you tend to be, when you, when you build that many courses, you tend to lose your fresh, uh, creativity to those, to that, you know? So you tend to, yeah, I don't think there's a, there's a, a drive for creativity or to come up with new concepts in, in a large firm you know, that was existing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that I don't think their clients were turning to Nicholas or Art Hills and saying, you know, we want something like really dynamic and fresh and a new take on architecture and and some really interesting shaping. They were, you know, they were enlisting those those firms for a completely different set of reasons. So there just wasn't the the drive. Um, and, And they weren't set up to experiment that way either. You know, when you're running a big operation and, the, you know, the man comes by 
five times on the throughout the course of the project and you have an associate on site and but they're really kind of turning over the work to a contractor and you know they're just it's that's not a environment for an explosion of fresh ideas yeah and and so you know just to kind of bring it back to your question relating on like for me how do i how do how do i get a, a chance to do something different or or bring something new to the table and that's you know uh, yeah for a lot of us um guys that are trying to make it you know coming up and build and design our own courses as like a single entity uh without any backing i mean that's just going to take some time and so for me i'm i'm you know i've I'm pursuing those pursuing leads that I've had. And, you know, I'm speaking with a few different clubs, um, on different ideas for their, their golf course, but you know, nothing's set in stone and nothing's, and I've, I've looked at different properties for, but it's not like, you know, this is going to be a go or we want you to do it or I haven't signed anything. So it's a lot of like, you know, just trying to, just trying to see and, and entertain those those people that want to even have you come look at their their land and their property and, yeah, and their they golf have to, course. They to, have to know who you are before you can get a job. So it's it, it's yeah. like probably going to, you know being a young actor in Hollywood and just going to casting call after casting call after casting call. You know, eventually you'll get a role. Yeah. Are you look? Are these projects? May I ask? Are they in the states or in Canada? Are they in Southeast Asia? Where do you feel like the opportunities might exist for someone like yourself? Well, you know, for me, uh, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, I've been speaking to, uh, you know, a few different clubs and kind of close to where I live in, you know, Southern BC and Southern Alberta. Uh, there's been a few opportunities that kind of come up that are international and they're they're all kind of like this could happen this this is possible but there's still a conversation happening and and you're still kind of getting your name out there but as for me I'm, i haven't really put my name out there that much i don't have a, a website i i don't have a you know dormer golf course design entity set up i'm on a slow kind of burner right now i want to learn from the best guys in this industry right now and right now you know i got two young boys and a wonderful wife that you know let me do this and you know they're over here with me in thailand they've been here for you know the past year with me for the majority of it and you know we're kind of taking this as you know life experiences and and having fun and you know stuff like that so i'm not necessarily actively pursuing it at 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 the moment it's like if something comes to me then yeah i'll definitely go after it but Mm -hmm. i'm not really putting myself out there and and you know doing the marketing and getting you know blog posts and uh you know setting up a website and and whatnot i'm i'm really focused on on the project at hand and you know, for me, it's, it, that's just, um, that's background noise at right now. Cause yeah. I mean, I've committed with Gil and Jim and, you know, this role, the role I have out here is a, a, a really big one. And, you know, there's a lot of responsibility to get this thing looking, um, and f- get their, 
design and implement it mm-hmm. out here. And I can't, you know, especially if I get something come up in Canada, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to like, Hey guys, I'm going to just take off for a week, you know, and, uh, (laughs) no, you're trying to, you've got, (laughs) yeah, it's a balancing act. Uh, Just to kind of continue on with this idea. I've, I've always looked at your generation of, of designers as one that is unique because there's such a willingness to collaborate I mean, you're very, you're, yeah. I mean, I'm, a, I'm of an older generation, you know, I'm a Gen X and we're very introverted and, uh, you know, cynical about the world. And it seems like uh, the, the people that I've talked to who do what you do, who are, you know, and you're, like I said, your peer group, uh, there's just a willingness to, to share and to be a part of something bigger and yeah. to work as a team. And that's a really important and awesome thing. And I think that's, you know, produced incredible results in the environments that you've worked with the architects you've, you've all worked for in various capacities in different places, but there is this collaboration, but at what point do you start to feel that there's also this level of competition? Because, you know, Tom Doak and Bill Corr have us and, and Gil Hans and, and Mike DeVries and other kid, they, they've really pushed architecture and carried it and, and changed the direction of it in their, in their own right. And this is their time. It has been their time for the last 20 or 30 years, but it's going to turn over. And then there's going to be a new group of designers who have an opportunity to take architecture somewhere. And at what point does collaboration with these guys that that you rub shoulders with turn into competition? Because at some point, these jobs are going to come open. You are going to get good sites. You're going to be battling for restoration work at clubs. Does it, does it, is it, can you see that there's going to be some level of competition that that comes arises uh, in the next decade or so? You know, unless you team up as a partnership with someone and stick it out like Bill and Ben do, you're all going to be invited to the table to either do a redesign or consult at a club or download is going to be how you keep things interesting and fresh. I mean, not just sticking with, uh, if you have a, a good, guy that you work with and you work really well together and you're both talented then you know that's going to be uh a key but if not then i i'd like to collaborate with a bunch of different guys that i see on social media and all the good work that they do and and you get different insights and aspects to the project that you're on if you're able to get that project but yeah, eventually there's a competition that's going to happen, but I think it's like going to be all in good fun, in a sense. So, yeah, yeah. As long as you know, one or two or three people don't start to dominate the industry and yeah, <laughs> box yeah. everybody out. Yeah, exactly. And then, but you know, you think about it. Most of us want to just keep it down to you know, couple jobs. If you can, if you're lucky enough to get two job, two say two new builds, just kind of like what? Right. Yeah, what that's a good point. Yeah. So I mean, there might be depending on if there's another boom or another whatever. I mean, there might be enough work to go around, and I think that the the you know the guys the cream will separate to the top, you know, and those guys will will be sought after, and I think it's going to be an, enough work to go around and the future and and you know, collaborate i mean you look at mike devries and frank pont a while back they you know i don't know if how that's working out but they collaborated on i think something i think over or over in holland or something like that but you know and i don't see why that can happen i don't 
see why we have to be deathly competitors unless you want to get 15 jobs and <laughs> you know you want to spread yourself thin and just travel from site to site to site and do it that way but yeah, well, i don't, I mean, I don't I, want to do that if those if the paychecks keep coming in and the clients keep paying their bills like that actually might be tempting for some people i'm not saying you know you or or <laughs> the d- disciples of the the you know naturalist movement but you know man that's money money changes everything yeah. as they say you know how how many of my how many of my you know the old school hip hop hip hop artists say more money more problems right like that's right it, it's it, and and that's it like even even right now if you have you know two or three projects or or two or three clients that you're trying to appease and they're like you have to be there to oversee a a contractor unless the contractor is really good and knows what you want where you can leave them alone. But otherwise you get spread too thin and your ideas aren't getting implemented in the ground. So, you know, that's why I prefer to be on site the vast majority of the time. Like there's a lot of guys who talk about on certain projects, I was there for a hundred days or 265 days on this project. Well, you know what? We're, we're here for 365 days. That's right. So there are other people who never left. Yeah, there there are other guys who who lived in a trailer on site. You know, like there yeah. are there are other guys who brought their family or or who never went home for Christmas. You know, like mm-hmm. there are those guys out there that have you know just as much, if not more, dedication. Um, and you know, if you really have the passion, you know, there's no second chances, man. Like if I get a, get my own project, whether it's small or big or whatever it is, I don't got a second chance after that. I that's you, you know how um, nerve wracking that is to be able to you know think about when you're building something. If is it how is it going to be received? How is is if if you don't have enough pushback from say the membership, then you're like oh man, maybe I did screw up. Because they liked it so much, I probably yeah. screwed up. Or if there is, you have to have some little bit and then some sort of criticism. And then, you know, you always try and get better, but you ha- there's no second chances. And you have to do something that's, that gets over that line to get you another job. And then eventually you get some. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I think I know that's the way you would feel. When you got, you know, the first big commission that had your name, you know, on the on the top of the masthead. But, you know, I don't think that's the way life works. I, I think yeah. you do get second chances, you know. The, um, but but that, that fear and that anxiety and that drive is definitely there. And it'll it'll help you produce the, the best possible results because you don't take anything for granted. No, that's that's it. You can't take any of it for granted. And you got to give it your all especially on one of your first gigs. And, you know, that's what we, a lot of us do out here. I mean, at Cabot, I seen my wife for 20 days in six months. Mm. And, you know, one of the coolest things about that is, is at Christmas, um, I, I, I don't know where I was, but a card came in the mail. And uh, my wife, she, she called me and she's like, a, a card came from some guy named... Uh, uh, Mike Kaiser, and it, this card was directed. This card was for me, so I opened it up, and I'm like, "For you, hun?" And it was a it was a card from Mr. Kaiser, a Christmas card, saying, uh, "Thanking my wife for her support in the project, and 
something to the I still have it, but something to the effect that he appreciates the fact that she supported me being out there and that that in turn she was uh you know, she helped that project become what it is. And there was no card to me. <laughs> there was no card to Trevor saying, Hey Trevor, thanks for being out there for, you know, seven days a week for months on end. But it was to my wife and that actually meant more to me than if there was a card to me because right. he knew. You know what right? would have really made that special for, for your wife is if there was a bonus check in there <laughs> made out to her for $10,000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. I mean, that that was something that, you know, that's something that one of my buddies would do or, you know, like they would, you know, when we were younger and we were just married and, you know, I the ball and chain comes out. My buddies would call my wife and be like, Hey, can Trev come out for a couple beers? You know, like they would never call me, but they would ask my wife, you know, exactly. just messing around. Yeah. But that, 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 was, that was, yeah, but that was really cool with uh, Mr. Kaiser. I mean, that was, but there's, you know, there's a lot of dedication. Yeah, no, to it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. And, and, you know, it's, it's going back to this topic and it's something that, you know, I bring up a lot when I talk to, people in the in the design build world and it's about opportunities for the young generation to to get their shot and and what's going to happen and what's golf going to look like and and what is what is the drive going to be for your you and your peers when you when you do get more chances and I'm curious about this you know I I said on a recent podcast that I don't understand the urge to to build a new golf course and try to make it look like an old golf course. And I, mm-hmm. I do understand the urge. I, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little um, uh, provocative when I say that. But it would just seem to me that, that there, I would be interested as a young designer given a shot to try to do something that, you know, didn't look like somebody else had already built it or, or thought of it. But And that's hard to do because you and, and other people in your position are, are, are brought up by these amazing, these groundbreaking architects who happen to have you know, made their name building golf courses that really look like they are part of the environment and look old and look natural. And they're the greatest golf courses that have been built in the last couple decades. So it's in your, you know, it's in your DNA to do that. And the work that you do on these golf courses, and I'm, I'm using you in the, in the royal sense, is they you know, you, your work on the bunkers is to try to blend these bunkers into the environment to make them look not manufactured in many cases. So wh- how did you, how do you reconcile that? Am I wrong in, in thinking that, that we need to, architecture as an art form going into the future needs to not try to be something that it's always been, to try to look like golf courses that have been built in the past? Well, no, I, I think that's a cool concept and, you know, I'd like to try and do something off the wall and I, I don't know what that is yet, but like, I mean, I think that when you have a piece it's of more land, about, to me, it's more about, I don't mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just yeah. real quick. It's to me, it's more about the impulse. It's, it's almost not about the result the you know, the product, cause maybe, you know, there are a lot of different things that would influence how a golf course turns out, you know, obviously the, the site, you know, the budget, the location, but, there's an impulse and I read it all the time. In fact, you know, you're working on a golf course right now in Bangkok that is trying to, you know, that is emulating a golf course that used to exist. It's like a a version of a literal take on something that is historic. 
And yeah. I'm sure it's going to turn out great and people are going to want to play it. But I'm talking more about like the, that impulse, that mindset to try to make golf look old. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there can be uh, – I, I wouldn't really say necessarily look old. I think it's kind of looking – I mean, there's a few – uh yeah you aged what yeah aged looking golf courses that you know you try and make it look like it's it was built with a a horse and a fresno scraper you know um and a lot of lumpy uh you know joe merrick uh features out there and you know that's cool and i like that i i enjoy that and if there's something pleasing to the eye about it but you know it's it's what do you try and bring it back to in a sense to, you know, super sleek lines in a bunker that, um, I mean, I think you can do that in some ways, but without getting back to the seventies, eighties resort, you know, uh, real estate era golf, where I think those things don't, fit well into the natural terrain and i think there's something about golf that always will be natural i mean you're out there for a walk it's the roots of it is in nature i mean people didn't and and people would go out for a walk and a hike but if it started raining they would be like let's get inside but golf played on that same type of terrain they they'll stay out there i mean and try and hit this little white ball into a little hole so i don't know if i'm answering your question i i don't necessarily know what is the next thing but i i try and take uh different wacky interesting um pieces of ground that i've seen throughout my travels in different parts of the world and i i try and think maybe i can implement that and that's that's new that's interesting implement that into a design i also think that get back to less bunkers on a course and kind of make it speak to the terrain and and to the natural you know strategy of the of the ground in a sense but that's still kind of keeping it natural i mean do you do you do you make uh triangular bunkers <laughs> you know do you make uh straight lines and geometric flat shapes you know almost uh an an enhanced um autocad version of rainer i i mean i don't know if that would look that would look way out of place or whether it would be cool well i mean it, it goes back to what you just said you know you in your mind you know, golf is a natural experience. You know, you play it outside and there's a, you think, interpret the desire of most players, you know, to want to be part of nature. So the golf course should reflect nature. Yeah, if you and, don't feel that way, if that's not forefront in your mind, I mean, I think you're going to be open to a lot more uh, other different types of golf experiences. And I, I don't know if every golfer feels that way. I mean, I think you'd like to think that. That's how I feel. I mean, I, I would like to. I like to play Pete Dye golf courses, and they're usually incredibly unnatural. Yeah. Um, I also like to play Core Crenshaw and Dote courses, and they're on their best sites, and that's that's very natural. I think most most 
golfers are kind of like that. They, they are open to different experiences. Yeah. And that's, you're adding to, you know, the variety of courses that you're looking to. I mean, if we always played Doak and Cor Crenshaw and Gil Hans courses, I mean, that would last us for a while, but we'd probably get, you know, we'd probably want to search for something new and interesting. And, and if you only played those courses and then all of a sudden you got onto like a you know, at a real estate course in Palm Springs, you'd be like, wow, this is cool. You know, like this is interesting because it's new well, to be you. interesting to take like that real estate golf course or the, that 1985 era Nicholas course. Once you started, you know, once they kind of started to like get a little steeper with the features, yeah. you know, there's like, like think of like Grand Cypress in Orlando, the, the original course is there. It, take that and, and remove it from the real estate context. Yeah. You know, that's, that ruins it for most people. <laughs> Maybe not. Those courses get a lot of play. But if you remove it from the residential real estate resort component where you're on a cart and you're on a path and everything's orchestrated and, you know, all your comfort stations, but you take that style of, of sort of modern or postmodern design that's not natural and you put it in a, in a, isolated environment i mean i i think there's a lot of appeal to that i'd be curious to see where that goes yeah and i mean there's a certain amount of uh quirk that i think is necessary in a course and you know and that's what that certain amount of quirk is is gonna make golf holes memorable in a sense like at least to me and what that Mm -hmm. quirk is is it you know bringing stone walls totally man-made features into play or cutting, you know, burns through spots that, you know, you just, or, you know, bringing a, an, an outbuilding from a, uh, from a farm and putting it on the right side of the fairway and you have to hit over it, you know, like putting these weird unnatural, uh, things and situations into, into the line of play and, but then, you know, some some people might think that you're going overboard on that and you've jumped the shark, you know. So it's, you know. There's, it, well, there's an element of risk that that would be involved. But, you know, I'm sure when Pete Dye was building Crooked Stick and those early courses that were the likes that nobody had ever seen before, he was he had to know that there was going to be reaction against that that he wasn't going to be able to please everybody but it it didn't deter him and I'm Trevor I'm not trying to I'm not trying yeah. to like goad you into doing something like crazy I'm just as a topic of conversation it seems like th- we take for granted that naturalism and blending a golf course into the environment is is really the only way to go now and in fact it's been so prevalent that companies that didn't pay any attention to doing that for years and years and years you know when they do get work now are still trying to do it. So it's become a, excuse me, it's become the dominant idea. And I just question, you know, it's, it's a phase because we didn't, we weren't here before we're here now and and we won't be here indefinitely or will we, maybe I'll, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe golf found its perpetual place. Well, you know, I would argue that it was kind of there before, you know, in the early 1900s where they didn't have, you know, they, they couldn't go all, you know, over the line in a sense. And all of those courses look really natural where you just basically started trying to mow fairways or get, you know, get the sheep and the cows out there to mow it down in a sense. But as far as... But isn't it interesting like, though, then once you the get modern, into... Yeah, I'm sorry to... I mean, I know I'm interrupting you and I'm being a terrible host. 
But going back to the what you were saying about Donna Ross, you know, I'm imagining at that time, even though you had like, you know, you had a Colt and McKinsey and, and advocating for and, and introducing like a natural style of bunkering and talking about working with the landscape. These were manufactured courses in many ways. You, you brought up Donald Ross, the, the idea of digging bunkers out and using the fill at the back of the bunker and, and creating a fill pad for a, a green. That was probably high tech at that time and yeah. sort of sort of modernistic for that era to to do that and we think of that style as naturalistic now because the construction methods were crude yeah but it (laughs) but those were those were built not all of course but many of the golf courses from that era were were cutting edge using the latest technology and being manufactured in a sense yeah no and you know i think that there's a a a percentage of people and golfers out there that might like something that is unnatural and unrealistic but you know know, i asked you before i think there's um naturalism and natural landscapes is kind of deeply seated in our dna as as humans i mean Mm. we were walking the land up until you know the car came along or the trains and stuff like that you know we you know a lot a lot of this stuff is 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 in our DNA, and we don't notice it. I think that because I've spent time on courses and nature, and you know what? Before I got into golf, I was more in nature and out in the mountains, on the prairies, in the river valleys, fly fishing. And there's a sense of calm and uh, stressless. Um, like a like no stress when you're in those situations you know when i go hiking or exploring in the mountains it's one of my favorite places to be because you you lose all sense of what do i got to do you know what all those things that you have to get done are gone because you can't you got no self-service you you're overwhelmed by the beauty of the the landscape that you're surrounded by and you're it's 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 producing endorphins that you haven't seen or 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 felt for a long time and i think that when golfers humans even though you're you've been in the city or new york or whatever your whole life and you barely get out into nature when you get away from the hustle and bustle of the city and you get onto a golf course, I think there's something that the golfer wants to feel like they're in nature and it's a quick kind of, uh, you know, spot to get out of their, you know, what I would say, get out of their shitty environment, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's to me. And that's, I guess it's just my upbringing and, and, where i'm most comfortable in but i like i live in a town in kimberly bc that's like i think it's ten thousand people and i'm living now in bangkok where um you know how many million people in bangkok and you know i drive an hour you know sometimes at the end of the day through crazy traffic and motor motorbikes whizzing past you on all these ends like when I'm done what I do at work, there's nothing more than I would love to, if I, I could just get out onto a peaceful golf course, use my body and be surrounded by something that brings me back to where, you know, something close to what, 
you know, walking in a, a, a meadow or a field mm-hmm. or where I grew up on the prairies. I mean, you know, flat with undulation and no cars, no nothing. I mean, there's, that's just me, but I think it's ingrained in most human beings, like from, you know, hundreds of years ago, passed on from their great grandparents, you know? So I guess getting away from that to building something unnatural and engineered, like think of like an, a building architect and, you know, I think those guys would be the guys to, to hire to build a, something totally different in a golf course. A guy that has no experience in golf course design or architecture and comes up with, you know, hey, we need to put greens at certain, you know, lengths from the tee and there needs to be, you know, some variety that, to the course. What can you do? And, and the ball, you know, has to be able to be, you know, you have to be able to putt on the, the green and, and you're, you're handcuffed to, um, green speeds of 11, you know? So the guy's just going to build something flat. And, but those are the guys that, you know, you'd have to bring someone in that has really no experience in golf. (laughs) That's funny. You say that it it comes back to Seth Rayner again a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, when you look at Rainer McDonald courses, I mean, they're, they're, that's from that era of, um, you know, building and uh, engineering. I mean, he was probably doing some of that. It was fundamental, you know, and the, the shot values of those template golf courses and the aesthetics were there, but they weren't all the same. All of all of the shorts that they built were a little bit different in different settings and and stuff like that. They just found you know terrain that fit those holes. But but yeah, but if you could have like transported yourself to nineteen twenty five and looked at a bunch of Seth Rayner courses, then looked at a bunch of you know Ross courses and McKenzie courses and Colt courses, you did you said which which one of these people is like the structural engineer? Yeah. I don't think everybody would get that one right. Yeah, no, exactly. So well, since before we. Um, before we, we we run out of uh, time here, get get too deep into this on this topic, like let's talk about the the project a little bit that you're working on right now outside of Bangkok, and it is for uh, Gil Hansen and Jim Wagner. Yeah. It's called Ballyshear Golf Links, and it is an homage to the Lido course that used to exist on Long Island, which was a McDonald Rayner golf course that was purportedly to be a, a wonderful amazing one of the best golf courses in the country tell us about this project and this is the least likely place probably in the world that you would <laughs> think that a Lido concept golf course would work so what are what's it like yeah i mean it's i mean i can't tell you how grateful i am to be a part of this and that gil and jim have, you know had me on with the team because i mean they could have they could have easily staffed it with some one of their longer term guy term guys. I mean, I've only done uh, like a trial period with them in in Dubai in the past, and um, the owner out here is actually the same owner that um, uh, of the Yokohama Country Club in in Japan. The the, the same owner that I worked with in uh, in Japan with Corin Crenshaw as well. So there's kind of a little bit of a tie there, um, but. You know, it's it's really cool. Um, it the site is uh, it's in it's surrounded by fish farms, <laughs> like 
It, it, that's how that tells <laughs> just you just like well. the original. Yeah, just like the original. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, like the original. So it's like aquaculture, like oh, farmed fish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like everybody's built these dugouts, and um, they it's about four feet deep, and it so it's low. You know, it's all low area, and you know we're. Um, it's it's very challenging. I mean, we're working in like the bluest of the gumbo clay. Um, you know, we're getting machinery stuck all the time, and you know, we're trying to find out, find out new ways to condition the dirt so what it's hard enough to where we can get on top of it and shape it. And I mean, um, we've we've learned. We've definitely. Um, made some mistakes but we've definitely learned from them and we're we're on a good track now it's rainy season so you try and hammer out um shaping on the in the dry days and get things moving forward and and pick your spots where you can go and work and stuff like that but i mean it's it's really cool we started on the back nine which is um you know we started with uh, mckenzie's prize winning hole and then 17 is long 16 is the redan uh, 15 is the strategy hole, um, and 14 is the short. Uh, 13 is, is the, the strategy. What's the strategy hole modeled after? Uh, I believe it was uh, it was a Tom Simpson, and I'm 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 not quite clear about this thing, but I, th- I think it was a Tom Simpson design. And I recently just heard from uh, uh, from Connor. Um, from the Society of Golf Course Historians, I, I was listening to something that they were talking about him and Jim Urbina on a podcast, and mm-hmm. they had said that this this hole was uh, Tom Simpson, and they that uh, McDonald had kind of flipped it over and made a few tweaks. And I, I haven't done the research on that, but I'll I'll trust with those guys. But um, it's it's kind of interesting. It's a it's a bunker scheme where there's three bunkers in the very front of the um the fairway and then like uh, 150 yards further up the fairway and then there's three bunkers on the right hand side of the fairway and then the greens kind of set in a, in a valley and it, it's a very interesting hole it's pretty cool um another guy that um works out here and works for hands uh golf design his name's brett Brennan, he's done a wonderful job kind of putting that hole into into place, kind of setting things up and and whatnot. So but it was kind of I don't think it was uh you know a, a typical template hole that that they used. So um mm-hmm. but yeah, and then fourteen, which is the short, we got a horseshoe in it, which is which is really cool and it's it's uh you know surrounded by um native planting and stuff like that so and then 12 is a punch bowl um punch bowl green which is it's really cool it's one of the coolest punch bowl greens i've ever seen and you know and then 11 is the like kind of a uh lagoon hole which is um i think it's just kind of an original from what i understand and then 10 is the Alps and, uh, you know, that thing's looking really cool. Um, and then, so yeah, that's all ready to go. It has irrigation. We're working on, um, uh, grassing the back nine right now. And then we're just, we're still kind of plugging away at the front nine. And so, uh, yeah, so we got, 
are, is this entire site sand capped or how, what are you, what's the material you're working with or how do you, how are you going to, to make the, the turf and the, yeah, you know, cause you, these concepts, you want the ball to be rolling and, and to run out. And how do you do that on the, these murky, yeah. <laughs> these murky soils <laughs> that you have? Well, a, a lot of it we've, um, we've conditioned the soil. So these, this mud, like potter's clay is what I call it. Like something that you think a potter would use. That's what the clay that we're working with. And if it dries out enough and then we bring in some uh, imported soil to mix with it and condition it, and then it's we shape that into plays with bulldozers and excavators, and then we add a sand cap to it. So, um, you know, we got a, a, a layer of sand cap going down there. And then uh, Neil Cleverly, our superintendent, is uh, – basically working his magic he he was out at uh, the olympic course with gill and jim um um but neil cleverly is the the superintendent growing uh superintendent out here and um yeah so he's got a couple interesting varieties of zoysia that uh he thinks is really good so um but yeah that's it you know like we're the ball's going to react. It's got lots of interesting undulation, not so much micro contour, but lots of um, bolder, um, long ridges that connect to, you know, other fairways and stuff like that. So it's really what we're trying to do is um, the Vanity Fair model um, that came out. It's uh, It was the clay model. Um, we're tr- just taking inspiration off of that and then right. direction yeah. from Gil and Jim on what they want to see. And we're just kind of, you know, just trying to get something cool looking in there and then, you know, just making like, everything that Gil and Jim want us to implement in the hole. And, and then they come and look at it and, you know, make, make tweaks and, or say, you know, it's as good. Let's, let's move forward or whatever. So, so what happens in, during this time of year to golf courses at that part of Thailand, do, do they still operate or do they just kind of shut down during the rain season? Uh, no, I think they all mostly operate, but it's, you know, things can get a little soggy. I mean, most of the courses out here are, I mean, I think they're built. <laughs> uh, there's a ton of Schmidt and Curly golf courses out here. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, those guys have had a huge influence on Asia, um, you know, as a whole. And so they, and, and I think they had, a you know, decent budgets for where they could sand cap. So, I mean, I think you, you get a big rain and everything sheds into catch basins and stuff like that. And, and so I think they're all, most of the golf courses still, still operate year round and unless it's in a floodplain or something like that and they got to do something different, but yeah. So for us, it's a little bit more challenging because our fairways, we don't have like catch basins pipes in the fairways. So we can't, we have to try and take water long distances to get it off, shed off the fairway, um, and then make it still stay natural looking, you know? So, um, Mm. we'd kind of drain the golf holes into the native areas on the, the right or the left of the fairways and just try and take them through natural looking swales. And yeah, just, I mean, the, the fact that you don't have catch basins, it could be a real plus if you can make it work. Yeah. And I mean, so far we are, I mean, this place will get like sometimes two to three inches of rain in a day. And when that happens, especially during construction, because it's, there's a lot of dirt, right? And so it's, it's, 
you know, sometimes pipes clog up everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes it, but generally after a few days of no rain, some, and it drains into that catch basin, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, we've had, you know, six, seven days of no rain. We've been pushing, you know, there's, there's a few other guys out here, Josh McFadden and uh, Tanner Geyer that are, you know, helping out with um, the shaping too. And, and the finish work, those guys are kind of working with the grassing um, and doing the the finishing of the sand cap. And then when Brett and I need some help on, on the shaping works, they come and kind of do some stuff and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, so we're, we're all trying to put our heads together and, and try and make something that's really noteworthy. And I think it will. I mean, I think this thing's, you know, it's one of those things where there's not meant there's, we're probably going to plant a few trees <laughs> and there's along the driving range, there's some trees and one by the 18th tee, but there's no trees. So like when you get to a high point out here, you look around and if you're a golf architecture nerd, you're just in heaven. Because you see all of these golf holes, these recognizable features of Rain and McDonald sticking up out of the ground. From the top of the Alps Mound, I mean, you can see the whole back nine and the vast majority of the front nine. You can see the hogs back. You can see the channel hole. You can see um, the Levin hole. You can see the Brits way back in the, in the corner, the Eden hole. Um, uh-huh. I mean, all of these things. So, I mean, for, for me, it's really cool to be able to build these things because you don't get a chance to, to necessarily build these things fresh all at once on a course. Like you can, you know, a lot of times you'll build kind of your own variation of a, of a Redan or, uh, or a punch bowl green or, or whatever, but not all on the same site at once. I mean, I think um, Brian Silva did that in Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. built yeah, his Black own, Creek. Yeah, Black Creek. So he did his own design, and he did that like a, a throwback. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a few few other guys that have done it. but And then, uh, oh, what's that one? The Arcadia Bluffs, the second course. Yeah, the, the new south course at Arcadia, yeah. Yeah, so. Dana Fry. Yeah, so that's kind of a really cool That's look. like a Chicago golf yeah. club. Yeah take off in a way yeah those guys i mean some of the pictures that i've seen those guys done some fantastic work we're quite a bit different than that like we are not sticking to simple um geometric bunker we're keeping a little bit of that but we're we're definitely trying more to Mc, more mcdonald right because the original yes. lido we had that kind of that rough windy sandy yeah. unkept look yeah that's that's right i mean and you know, um, Gil, you know, Gil is, has been good friends with George Botto for, and Gil and Jim, with George Botto for a while. So they've given, mm-hmm. he's given them before him passing away his, a lot of his research and his ideas and stuff like that. So, you know, they're, that's been a good guiding principle in, in, in certain ways. And, you know, we're not trying to do the exact, we're, we're trying to make it all work together in the same sequences, sequence of holes as the original Lido. But I mean, it's Gil and Jim's interpretation of, of what that is. And it's not, you know, to the point of exact, I mean, we have all the old aerials. So, you know, we look at that and we like, Oh man, this is cool. Like in the 1940 version, um, they started putting like walking paths through the bunkers because people, 
these these cross like I, I just was working on the channel hole and there's a massive cross bunker in front of the green that is you know 80 yards wide it goes extends further further than the than the fairway and you know we're gonna have yeah yeah <laughs> like can't have people walking all the well by the way is this is this going to be a walking only course um no i mean this is <laughs> this is asia you know <laughs> they don't they don't walk out here and it's going to be a predominantly uh japanese uh, membership i think right the, the it's Jap- when you look at the schematic if 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 the, uh listeners go to brc.co.th yeah. that's the the website of uh the development Bonnercott, yeah. and there's a schematic of the golf course on it, and you can see all the all the McDonald Rainer holes laid out, and I, I don't see any cart paths illustrated on it, so I <laughs> kind of got my hopes up. Not, I don't know that I'll ever get over there and play it, so maybe it doesn't matter to me personally, but I'm all for walking only golf courses, yeah, as and, many as we can get. Yeah, me me too, and I think for the most part, what the Japanese do, from my experience at Yokohama, is they have the carts that are like automated. And they stick to the trails on the outskirts of the hole, and then they walk out from the cart. I mean, I think Mr. Ayama uh, doesn't want carts cruising all over the place aimlessly. I think he's going to keep it kind of contained to the outer limits of the holes. And and what you know, where Gil and Jim would like to see the the paths kind of go, you know, here and there. And you know, we also got to give. Um, neil cleverly um maintenance paths and stuff like that but we're going to try and conceal those um paths as best as we can like not they're not going to be concrete or asphalt they're going to be like a an aggregate and then a sandy skim over top of it to help it blend into the to the native areas that they go through so they won't be really noticeable they might have a country country road look um to it more so um so but yeah no so um but then you know as the caddies give you know the golfers their clubs they'll get back in the cart and continue on let the the golfer hit but you know with you know walking through these bunkers i mean gill and gill has made many mentions that you know we can probably try and put some sleepers in some of these bunkers or put some sleeper steps you know, coming out. So I think there's going to, we're going to make an effort to make, bring some, you know, cool features to the course. And, and, um, you know, Gil's got some good ideas and the rest of the guys have some good ideas on how to make things stand out and look different. So, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with everything that's kind of moving forward out there and, uh, the shapes and, and the shot types that are in the ground. I think it's going to be something, that you know south southeast asia hasn't seen before so um yeah well i'm anxious to see some pictures when the holes begin to be grassed and growing in i think that'll hopefully you know i think it'll capture the uh, kind of the attention of the international architectural audience (laughs) yeah i mean uh it doesn't photograph right now i have not (laughs) when gil was out here he was trying to you know we we waited you know till later on in the evening to try and find some light and you know he spent days trying to find a a good picture of the course it just doesn't photograph well right now with the contrast with the the dirt you know um some courses do some courses don't but as soon as i mean we've got the 18th hole grassing we've got a few of the greens uh so 18 and 17 grassed 
uh, the greens and everything sand on those holes sand capped and then the redan hole is sand capped now too so when that happens you just definitely start to see it but it still gets washed out and uh, the light the sunsets are just not uh, <laughs> as good out here so um, we won't. We will not prejudge. Yeah. I'll speak to for everyone. We'll wait until the the product is grassed in before we start to ooh and ah or pass judgment. But yeah. we need to. I need to. We need to start wrapping this up, Trevor. Yeah. So um, on this topic, though, uh, what is now that you've been working on this on the Lido project and exposed to McDonald Rayner style architecture? I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer this either way. What is what is your favorite template hole, or what is what has been your favorite template hole to build? Oh man, um, you know I I enjoyed working on uh, the knoll green, um, the knoll hole, just because it's it's so big and so propped up out of the ground. I mean, that's cool to build a such a propped up, you know, volcano looking type hole. You know, I, I, it's it's really tough to even answer that. I mean, I just finished, uh, you know, putting in some shapes and uh you know early concepts of the the channel hole and that thing is looking really close to you know what it looked like uh in on the original like yeah it's that's that's a tough one for me yeah i i mean i like the short you know i i I didn't have a whole lot to do with the short out here but i think the short is such a good looking hole um you know, especially if it's done right and has, you know, an interesting, I like the Sleepy Hollow short is, is unreal, especially with what Gil just done over the past couple of years, restoring that, right. that feature. Cause it's, it's unnatural. Who puts a horseshoe in a green, like, you know, or a thumbprint, mm-hmm. like that's just kind of weird, but it's, I'm, I'm becoming more and more open to the, the style of architecture weird yeah, weird can be good definitely I'm just telling no, you. And, and so that's the thing it's been eye-opening to me because i've never built any of this stuff before and to get this opportunity to really you know dive into rainer mcdonald and and you know get to go out and see places like the creek club and and you know the national the national is just eye-opening um you know so places like that is just so so crazy to get get into their minds and 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 you know try and figure out hey what would these guys do in this instance because that's kind of what gil has said it's like not more not a, not like what would gil and and jim do but what would rainer and mcdonald do in this instance you know so you know that's been that's been really cool out here and maybe like the maybe like the null hole because you in somewhere in your subconscious you feel like you can execute it correctly instead of the one like a <laughs> piping rock with that strange rear bunker that doesn't feel right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's definitely something like that out out here too. So <laughs> it's it's just one of those things that I, you got to get used to, you know, and you got to realize the value in these um, interesting, quirky, forced looking bunkers, you know. So. You just got to have an open right. mind when it comes to golf architecture because it's so subjective, you know. It's it's extremely ex- mm-hmm. subjective. There's there's not a whole lot of rights or wrongs. It's kind of what you know, the person likes that has the you know, has the final say and stuff that stuff. Yeah. You've been living in Thailand for over a year yeah. now basically, right? What 
what about the cuisine has surprised you? What did, do you have a favorite dish or are you turned on to something now that, that you've never thought that you would like heading into this experience? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty adventurous, you know, uh, my, my wife and I, we've done a lot of traveling around the world when we were younger, before we had kids and stuff like that. So we, mm-hmm. we always try and just try everything, you know, crickets, crocodile, like all, all of that stuff. But out here, it's just, there's so much like with a green curry or a red curry or a Penang, uh, or even as simple as like a chicken fried rice, each cook has their own kind of version of it and different spices that they put into it or different love that they would put into it you know so uh i i'm i'm a big fan of a of of a green curry and then there's a local restaurant that we go to at lunch most of the time and it's it's basically a garlic fried uh stir fry with pork and and rice and it's a it's a it's a good staple and and the soups as well but you know there's some weird stuff out here um like you'll go to a market and you'll see a bunch of maggots, um, grub looking things. Yeah. They'll be sitting there and they're kind of fried up with herbs and spices in it. And they'll just like, you know, there's, um, uh, grasshoppers, crickets in, or whatever they are, a cricket or a grasshopper, whatever one it is on these, in these big, um, food stall areas. And people will be, just you know dishing it up for you know 40 cents or a dollar so there's there's those weird things um out here but it's cool yeah i always consider myself i've always kind of considered myself an adventure adventurous eater as well but more in the western (laughs) western civilization (laughs) you know culture the um insects yeah i think i've drawn the line there i I, you know i well, yeah, I hear they're I ate, tasty. Um, crickets. When my wife and I were in Africa, Africa doing development work, and uh, if you if it gets fried in in oil and then uh, spiced up with like a seasoning salt or a, a salt, you know they're not bad. <laughs> they really aren't. Like if you get over that, just is it just yeah, like a just salty a salty crunch? crunch and protein? You know, like it's just like nuts. protein. You know, it just. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and it's protein, got a yeah. woody flavor. It's got a little bit of a woody flavor to it. So it's it's nothing like, oh, okay. I'm I'm going to go right. eat crickets, but it's definitely a good source of pro- protein for, you know, the people that eat it down there. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's somebody in the world who can describe the different flavors that uh, different species of crickets have when they're fried up in different seasons. There's somebody out there who's like a culinary cricket <laughs> yeah, there's expert. there's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be. All right. Well, th- you got it. You had to know this one's coming. What's your favorite modern golf course uh, that you were not involved with? Well, um, I I think uh, what Rod Whitman did at, at Cabot Links is something special. And you know, having being able to play it like three days a week after work and and get out there for you know a whiskey loop. Um, at the end of the day, just hitting, hitting shots wherever you want that, that course sets up so good. And it's just, uh, especially when you're like one of the last people out and you can just have free reign of the course. 
it's it's so cool and just being on the ocean and what rod did rod's got some of the best greens in the world in my in in my opinion he uh yeah he's 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 a wizard so yeah i'd say cabot uh i'd say cabot links is is my favorite and that's just because i've been there spent time on it and you know i don't really feel like i can i mean i walked friar's head i love friar's head that place is so good i think it's you know it's as it ages like a fine wine you know it's going to get better and better and it's already aged 20 years or 15 years or however old it is but i think it once it gets into like a 50 year category it's just going to keep getting better and better you know so but cabot links i think is would be my favorite just because i have the most knowledge of it of you know course because i spent a lot of time on it and then uh you know as a nine hole course i love sweetens cove man i i love that place it's it's super cool um i'm trying to think of it yeah and i know you modern course which is 18 but you know, Sweetens Cove is, yeah. No, that counts. Yeah. It definitely counts. No, that's interesting. That's the first, you're the first person who I've asked that that's brought well, up yeah, Sweetens no, Cove. I mean, Sweetens Cove for uh, for a nine hole, but you can obviously play, you know, two nines and, you know, different ways. And then, you know, best modern little short game practice facility. I like he, the, the horse course that uh, they did at Prairie, at the Prairie Club, I think. Yeah, that was sort of like the the original the original version of the short yeah, course they, concept. Guys, I don't know when Gil and Jim did it, but that was, you know, that was on my radar when I was before I even knew who Gil and Jim really were. Like I when when I was younger, mm-hmm. I did a lot of CAD golf, so just kind of, you know, build the greens to plan, get it really close and whatnot. And so when I realized I didn't want to keep going down that path, just building things to plan and be creative. That's when I started researching these guys like Corn Crenshaw and Gil and Jim. And I remember seeing the horse course and I was like, what the hell is, what are these guys doing here? Like there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's like playing, you know, it's like playing horse with your buddies playing. Yeah. That's playing it. horse. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, it, and it fits. <laughs> All right. Now we're dropping yeah. and we're hitting over there. Yeah. Where? Right over yeah, there. So, that flag I mean, way out there that concept is is something that is super cool and i think you know as long as there's a a little bit of direction on where you can go in certain uh routing schemes that you can play you know uh i think that's cool but i think that if you just leave it up to the golfer to do kind of whatever and you'd have to play it a bunch of times to to make your own routing and your own kind of cool way and journey and and path through that those places but i think you still have to give a little bit of direction on you know those those concepts like the horse course so but yeah. uh yeah especially if there's more than yeah, two exactly. groups out there now that's true um <laughs> yeah so no i think yeah 18 hole nine hole and, all right yeah so Th- those are good yeah i think i think you explored some new territory with that question <laughs> well, i'm pleased i wish i wish that uh and I, I know that, you know, everybody wants this, but I, I wish that, that Rod Whitman would have gotten a few more opportunities to do his thing on some good sites. And, you know, he's, he's still in the game, so it could still happen, yeah. and hopefully it does. But I, it's just, it kind of shows you the, 
and you know this, it's sure, it, it speaks to the power of, yeah. of salesmanship and personality and how big of a part of, of the game that still is. And it, that's something good for, for you and, and your, you know, your contemporaries to yeah. think about as well. I think you, I think you guys are already got it figured out in a way that some of the, you know, the, the generation above you, some of them didn't like Rod. I mean, I, I think that he just, maybe didn't sell his himself as well as other people did sometimes. I think he'd admit yeah. that as well. But talent wise, you know, yeah, he's, no, good he's as good, if not better than anybody. I mean, that guy is a, a genius and I can't speak highly enough of him. I, I went and walked his routing that him and Dave did when uh, the second at Sand Valley, you know, when a bunch of architects put in a, a, a right. routing and I went yeah. out there with Rod and, um, you know, we met him out, Riley Johns and I met him out there and on our way back from Cabot Cliffs and we walked his routing, the one that he did with Dave Ashland, that thing was unreal. It had mm-hmm. like the front nine was reminiscent to, um, uh, Crystal Downs front nine, which is unbelievable. And, and then the, the loop on the back was just so unbelievable. It was so cool. And you know, it it had uh, kind of a big loop around a massive dune with trees on it to where you're kind of separated, like a hole by hole kind of um, path on the on the back nine. So it's not just an expanse of like you know golf holes. And that there is just it was. I was really surprised if when they didn't get it. I mean, I still think that if they were to explore his routing and his and Dave's routing out there, it would be, it would be unreal. So. Yeah. Dave, Dave told me about that, that their concept was to get up in, in the big dunes, which would be like the first night at crystal downs and then kind of get out of it and explore different parts of the property. And they thought that was the best approach where their feedback that he got from, from Mike Kaiser was he saw, um, David McClay kids routing, which is basically entirely in yeah. the big dunes. I mean, the golf course is completely surrounded by these huge natural features. And Kaiser thought that that would be a more desirable kind of contrast to the Sand Valley golf course. Uh, and that's why they went with kids. Axland was like, well, I wish we would have known that. Well, ahead of I mean, time. I, I, we might have taken yeah, advantage I mean, of that I approach. They should have kept that. I mean, that the walk is, is, the variety that they had in that walk was on, it was so good. You know, they, they took it into different places. And if you, in your, your routing, if you stay to a certain, uh, genre or a certain, um, area, it's, it's less interesting than if you, if you explore different parts of a property with a golf ball and, and club in hand. So that, that's something that speaks to me. I mean, Dave Axland is, is, you know, one of those guys that, you know, you, you're in with those two guys, you're in the presence of greatness. And, you know, those just, just getting to spend some time, the little amount of time I get to spend with those guys is, you know, it's always a joy and they're, they're unbelievably talented. And, you know, I think that if they were to get selected for, you know, a few more new builds or something like that, that they could do something totally different too. And I mean, I'm excited to see what they do with this, uh, the short course at Cabot too, because they'll they'll knock that one out of the park. So yeah, yeah. well, let's leave it right there, Trevor. <laughs> those are those are good thoughts to All end right. on. 
Hey, I enjoyed it. I'm glad we got to finally do this. This is, it's always good chatting with you and you bring up some really good, uh, interesting takes on golf architecture. So, uh, keep, keep around. Likewise. That was enjoyable discussion. Yeah. Cool. Case. All right. Trevor Dormer. There he is. Continuing a long list of impressive Canadian guests we've had on the podcast. That includes Ian Andrew, Rod Whitman, Jeff Mingay, Keith Cutton. And I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. I think that's it. Now Trevor Dormer joins that list. Good job, Trevor. Uh, first of all, I have to um, apologize to Trevor. Several times I, uh, I cut him off right in the middle of a, of a thought that he had. That was incredibly uh, rude of me. And uh, Trevor, I'm, I'm sorry for stepping all over your answers. That was a conversation where I think Trevor and I both approached it with uh, sort of a, like a list or an outline of things we wanted to talk about and get to. And maybe about 15 minutes in, it became obvious to both of us that we were just going to go where the conversation took us. And we, we scrapped our outlines and lists and, and just started talking. So I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. Trevor's a really smart guy and he has a bright future in this industry. And, you know, he's just in that category of designers, young designers who are just waiting their moment, you know, who are working hard, doing great work, learning the trade and becoming experts in their field and eventually they'll get their shots whether it's at a private club restoration or, or hopefully I think we'd all be really incredibly curious to see the the ideas that, that Trevor and his contemporaries could express on, on a new property. If you listen to the show and you are not on Twitter, you should sign up. Uh, you don't have to tweet but it's a great place to follow golf discussions and golf architecture, see great photos from some really talented photographers and artists, and just kind of eavesdrop on what's happening in the uh, golf architecture and golf course world especially. If you, do the, if you do join Twitter, follow me, at FeedTheBall. I'm also on Instagram for great photography, at uh, FeedTheBall. I would be remiss if I did not encourage you to please go to iTunes. Search for Feed the Ball in the podcast section and give this show a rating and review. I appreciate all of those of you who have done that already and given it a star rating and, and maybe left a comment. That means a lot. Be sure to go to TalkingGolf.com to find the latest and greatest in golf podcasts. Check that periodically and subscribe to all those shows so you don't miss anything. We'll wrap this up now. Thank you very much for listening and tuning in. Thanks to Trevor Dormer for burning the midnight oil from Asia to, to join us on the podcast today. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music, as always. And until we get a chance to do this again, Arrivederci.